we just talk about Henry James for another five weeks? Um, but then I thought better of it. Um, one thing, uh, just to uh, say a little bit about the ambiguity of turn of the screw. Does everyone now think, especially since Ben isn't here, um, yeah. that it's intentionally ambiguous? Um, okay, some people don't. Um, do you, what do you think? You're, you're frowning. <laughs> nice, good answer. Um, well, see, the, here's an argument against its being intentionally ambiguous, would be that the whole novel really does, I mean, I think this is clearly true. We, James, no matter what he was doing, he wouldn't have wanted us to know the truth until the very last page. That, I think, we really demonstrated. That is, that he, she, the governess thought she had her proof and that she wasn't mad when it came to Flora, but then it turned out, no, she didn't. That what looked like it was decisive proof, suddenly um, Flora escapes or the situation escapes from decisive proof. Yeah. When she first meets Flora, she's like, this child is perfect. Like, yeah. she, like everything is perfect, which for me left me uneasy. Right. I was like, like that, I don't know, just like describing something as insanely like right mm -hmm. makes me feel like something has to be wrong. But yeah, like, but the question is what's wrong? Right, so there's constantly like, well, wait, what is it? What's, what's bothering me? So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's there from the start. I mean, what's, how, whatever you think the truth of the book is, that it's intentionally ambiguous, that it's not intentionally ambiguous, that the ghosts clearly exist, that the ghosts clearly don't exist, um, it's certainly the case that we're not supposed to know until the last page. Um, we're not supposed to know the answer to anything until the very last page of the book. Um, and that, I think, we demonstrated because um, the governess keeps thinking, now I would finally have proof, and then realizing, no, actually, that wasn't proof yet. I thought I, I, thought I had a one position, as we chess players say, um, but it turned out that there was something that I hadn't um, seen that um, the children could do, or that the situation could do. So um, it's only in the very last moments of the book, really, when she um, says, um, uh, who? And he says, Peter Quint, you devil. Um, where? Those five words is what it finally comes down to. On any reading of the book, any reading of the book, what's going to be decisive is what those five words give you. Peter Quint, you devil, where? And um, if the book isn't ambiguous, it's because James thought those five words actually decided it and that the ghost really existed, that, Pete, that, that Miles and Flora really did see the ghosts and the governess was vindicated. Um, if the you there applies to the governess, maybe James didn't see that someone would make that mistake and see the you as applying to the governess, and it's just a slight slip on James's part, or not even a slip, it's just a, it, it just doesn't quite make sense. Um, or it could be that in those five words, he gives us his last ambiguous statement. And in giving us that last ambiguous statement, he clearly wants to make it ambiguous. Or it could be 
that um, he didn't want to make it ambiguous, as I say, um, but we don't know what those five words prove. That is, some people will say, why, yes, it's a duck. The governess is a duck, or she's a duck devil. And right. in one case, she's a duck, and in one case, she's a devil. And um, when Miles says, you devil, we see the governess as devil. And when Miles says, you devil, we see Peter Quint as the devil. Um, and um, it's unfortunate that we just don't know. There's a famous, for example, there's, I won't be able to quote it right, um, but in Bartlett's quotations, there's a sentence by the um, 19th century uh, philosopher of science, in particular of geology, I believe. He wrote a book on engineering named William Wool, um, which, is, which is, goes something like, he's just describing mechanics, and he's saying, um, it will be found that um, uh, um, if you draw, um, if you, if you, um, with whatever pressure, however great, upon a line, however fine, cannot um, pull out a horizontal line that shall be accurately straight. Um, and this is just a, this is, it's, I'm not quoting it exactly right, unfortunately, but this is just a sentence in this textbook of mechanics. Um, and what he's basically saying is that if you, if you have a line, if, even if you have thread and you're suspending it horizontally, um, no matter how hard you pull on the ends of the thread and no matter how fine the thread is, there's always going to be a dip. Um, that's physics, that's gravity. Um, and he's just pointing that out, that you can't get perfect horizontality through pulling against a gravitational field. But he writes this in a perfect quatrain without knowing it. Um, and um, actually, can you look that up? It's, it's uh, I think if you do wool, I think it's um, W-H-E-W-A-L-L, -L, um, and put in quotes accurately straight, you should be able to find it. And if not, put in Bartlett's. Um, but the point is that you can inadvertently, if you're just talking about five words, you can inadvertently make um, a mistake. You can think James himself might have been defeated by um, the ambiguity of his own writing. Um, he, just as the governess, keeps thinking, now there can be no doubt. But then there's something she didn't think of. If you try to make everything depend on your last five words, that could be like Casey at the bat. Um, he whiffed, thinking he wouldn't whiff. Sorry, um, I can't find it. Can I borrow it? Yeah, go for it. It's, it's, it's so not worth it, but it's so I worth it. I didn't want me to have it with the quotes. All right. Um, however fine... Oh, yeah, found poetry. There it is. Oh, there's a Wikipedia entry on found poetry. That's great. Um, oh, here it is. Okay. Um, so this is in An Elementary Treatise on Mechanics by William Wool, And he just wrote this as a sentence. Wikipedia puts it as a quatrain, but it wasn't. Um, I actually looked it up on Google Books. And it's a, just a paragraph with diagrams and uh, totally boring, um, except right in the middle of that is, hence no force, however great, 
can stretch a cord however fine into a horizontal line which is accurately straight. Um, and so he didn't know he had done that. There's also something called, so, so the point, look, the point is, and this really is our segue into Merrill, the point is that when you're dealing with language, um, you're dealing with um, things that are always going to be ambiguous. It's the nature of language to be ambiguous. The reason people do go on is because they have to keep correcting possible errors that they notice um, in the interpretation of what they've said. You know, anytime you say a double entendre and then you have to quickly correct yourself and you're embarrassed or whatever, um, that's because language by its nature is ambiguous. The world is much finer grained than the language that we use to, to talk about the world. And because of that fine grain, we can only approximate in any sentence the thing we're trying to say. And we can get arbitrarily close, as the mathematicians say, to um, an exhaustive description of something, but we can never get there. It's impossible to get there. As you know, it's even impossible to get there with numbers. That is, if you ask what the ratio of this edge of the book to this edge of the book is, there's no number that you can give that will tell you exactly, um, because it's going to be an irrational ratio. Um, if you think it isn't, you're wrong. It is. Um, there are no rational ratios in nature. Um, so except on a quantum level. Um, but that brings its own problems. Um, so what happens then is in literature, this is going a little bit back to, the, to what we're talking about in Claude, is that um, there's writers try to give exquisite attention to what they're saying um, to get rid of any, any unwanted ambiguities. Writers love ambiguity, or a lot of them do, but they don't want ambiguities that they don't know about. Um, however, if you're pitching everything on five words, which really, turn of the screw, is pitching everything on, um, there's at least a decent chance that he couldn't, in those five words, give you the key to the whole novel. That he wanted it to be clear that the governess was hallucinating, or that he wanted it to be clear that the ghosts were real. And those five words were finally going to tell you the truth, the governess is hallucinating, or the ghosts are real. But by, if he wanted the book not to be ambiguous, it may well be that five words wasn't enough to keep it from being ambiguous and that that was a moment where he wasn't quite in control of what he was saying, just as Wool didn't realize he was writing a quatrain. Or to give another example, which, it, which is going to be relevant to Merrill, did people know about Uli Po? So Uli Po is this um, French group. It still exists, but it was really um, dominant from the 60s to the 80s. It stands for, in French, the Workshop for Potential Literature. What the Uli Po writers did was to um, give themselves what they called constraints. Um, and they would write under constraint. Um, the, the, probably the most amazing, I mean, definitely the most amazing of the Ulipo writers was a guy named George Perec, P-E-R-E-C. Um, not pronounced Perec, but Perec. Um, who would give himself a constraint in everything that he wrote, but wouldn't announce the constraint. So he wrote a book called La Disparation, um, translated into English as 
avoid. That is two words, not avoid, but um, it was a book about avoid. Um, and it's a mystery novel. Um, we might translate it as the disappearance, but it's a mystery novel. Um, and one of the questions in this novel is um, the detective, whose name is Anton Val or Vol, V-O-W-L, um, is knows something is missing, but he's trying to figure out what's missing. So it's a it's a really good novel. It's it's 350 pages long. It was published. It got lots of good reviews. People thought it was a little postmodernist, but really interesting anyhow. Um, and um, when it was published, you know, it 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 got respectable reviews. Sold well. Um, after a while, people noticed what actually had disappeared, which is the letter E. In the novel, there's no letter E except in its author's name. Um, except on the title page and on the cover, um, Georges Perrick. Otherwise, no letter E. This is harder in French than in English um, because you can't use feminine adjectives. You can't use EST, is. You can't use ET, and. Um, there are just an enormous number of words. You can't use um, JE for I, je. You can't use ELLE -E for um, she or her, you can't use L-E-U-R for there. I mean, it's just easier everywhere. Um, there are 8% of English letters, and I th uh, uh, in any English passage, 8% of the letters will be an E. Um, in French, it's more like 10%. So entire novel without the letter E, yeah. I forget the name, but there was a guy who did it in English in the early 20th century, and he also, I thought this was really interesting, he wouldn't even write Mr. because mm -hmm. he said, well, it's, it's an abbreviation, abbreviation. That includes yeah. the letter E. Yeah. So yeah. Left that out, so. yeah. Yeah. The novel is, is Gadsby, but I forget the name of the writer. Yeah, right. um, it's before The Great Gatsby, by the way. Gadsby was first. Um, but, but Fitzgerald probably didn't know about it. Um, I tried reading Gadsby. <laughs> it was unpleasant. Um, there's also someone, a friend of a friend of mine, wrote a novel where he doesn't use the same word twice. Um, wow. So once he uses the word the, <laughs> that's it. He can use it once in the entire novel. How um, long was this novel? Um, I think it's 60,000 words. I also gave up after, <laughs> you know, I mean, 60,000 words means practically the entire dictionary. You can't uh, use a name twice That's right. You have a yeah, and you can't use the same pronoun about that character. It's impossible. Well, it's, it's hard. <laughs> Let's just say it's hard. Um, well, then, Perrick, the next novel he wrote was called Les Revenants. That is the returners or the ghosts. See how we get. And in that novel, the only vowel is the letter E. Huh. Um, but people notice that. Um, so, um, but anyhow, he gave himself these constraints and then met them. And um, probably the most amazing thing he did was a 5,000 word essay on palindromes. Oh, no. Was it a palindrome? Oh. So you only needed the first half. Um, and what, um, what the Ulipo people are doing, are trying to do, what, the, the, other, the other extremely famous Ulipo project was a book called 10 to the 14th Sonnets, which you can actually find um, online and you can also find a, um, a, a brilliant English translation of it. Um, so 10 to the 14th is 100 million billion, just so you know. Um, that's, that's a lot of sonnets. Um, as he pointed out, if you read a sonnet a second, um, to read all of them would take longer than the age of the um, solar system. Um, so how do you write 100 million billion sonnets? Well, he has, 
they they appeared originally in 1961. It's much easier in computer, but in 1961 they appeared with 10 possible first lines. The page was then cut so that you have 14, it's 10 pages long, but the page is cut in 13 places between the 14 lines. Um, and so any first line can be followed by any second line, can be followed by any third line, etc. Um, but they all rhyme and they all make sense. Now, if you think about the fact that they all rhyme, did any of you look at the Starbucks, by the way, that I sent you all? Um, so, so in a sense, he has the same problem, which is to get the, the sonnets rhyme A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. That's what the, what the octet looks like. So there have to be 40 different A rhymes, 10 A's for the first line, Another 10 for the fourth line, another 10 for the fifth line, and another 10 for the eighth, eighth line. 26 letters in the alphabet, but he has to have 40 rhyming words. How does he do that? Well, you can, you know, like brash rhymes with rash, um, cash rhymes with clash. So it's the, it's the um, you can get clots of consonants at the beginning. But yeah, and if you read the sonnets, you can take any first line, any second, any third, any fourth, any fifth, etc. And you get a sonnet that makes at least as much sense as a lot of poetry in the Norton anthology, um, or as much sense as, as Mallarmé. Um, so if you were to read a random sonnet in this book, um, the odds are you would be the only person in the universe who had ever read that poem. Mm. Um, so there is a guy who then translated it into, into English, and it also rhymes in English. Um, and you can find it. His name is Beverly Charles Rowe. And if you go to bevrowe.info, B-E-V-R-O-W-E dot info, um, you can find these sonnets. So, but the Uli Po people, the reason I bring it up is that the Uli Po people also got interested in people who were meeting, oh, I, I want to tell you one other thing they do. Um, they're trying to do, and this can be an exercise for you, um, is they want a dictionary of faux amis. Do people know what faux amis are in um, French or in learning French? Fake friends. Fake friends. So it's um, where you see a word in French and you think you know what it means because it looks just like an English word. Um, but you're wrong. It's so unfortunate. Yeah. Well, so what they want is, this is a little bit like the Gadsby guy. What they want is a list of words that could be French or could be English but are not synonymous. So they ha actually have a little um, dictionary or a little, um, they, do ha they have drawn up such a list. So words that could be French or could be English, but are not synonymous. Um, and people are also trying to do this with German and English. Words that could be German or could be English, but are not synonymous. Um, so that they never mean the same thing. Uh, an obvious example is T-H-E, which in English means the. Um, but in French means? Tea, um, as in a cuppa. Um, so words that could be French, could be English. And they want to write a story that if a person, if a French person read this story, they would think, oh, that's a nice story. And if an Anglophone read the story, they would think, oh, that's a nice story. And the French person wouldn't realize that it could be read in English. And the Anglophone wouldn't realize that it could be read in French, there enough of those words? and that there would be well, this—it's a—it's turning out to be a much more difficult project than they thought. <laughs> uh, but there are sentences where they've done that. But the point would be, and it would be a different story. So in a way, that's what Henry James is doing. In a way, um, but then the other thing that 
that when they write about um, what they're doing, they're also interested in um, what are called pangrammatical windows. And what a pangrammatical window is, is a stretch of text. Um, the most famous one is the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Um, the quick red fox jumped over the lazy brown dog. No, the quick brown is already in the fox. Oh, I heard a different version. No, you probably heard the lazy dog's back, but you don't need the back. Brown gives you the B, lazy gives you the A, quick gives you the CK. Uh, oh, maybe you need it for the dogs, you need it for the S. That's what you need it for. The quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Yeah, okay. Well, jumped over the lazy dogs. That would do it. Um, so a pangrammatical window is how short a stretch of text do you need to get all 26 letters in the alphabet. You know, that's how you test typewriters. You know what typewriters are. This matters for the Book of Ephraim. So if you go buy a typewriter, that's the sentence you're supposed to type, is the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dogs, and then you'll know if every key works. Um, so that's called a pangrammatical window, because every letter of the alphabet appears in a stretch of text. Uh, in theory, what's the shortest pangrammatical window you could have? The alphabet. Yeah, but that's not saying something. I mean, something that actually, um, a sentence that makes sense. How short could it be in theory? How many letters? 26 letters. There actually are a couple. Um, the most, the one that makes most sense, um, isn't going to strike you as dazzlingly sensible, but it's a very famous sentence in the annals of pangrammaticism. Squudgy Fez, a man, so what you have to imagine is that a man um, is playing a cruth, which is a wealth, it, it, it's spelled C-R-W-T-H, it's a Scrabble word, if you ever need it in Scrabble. It's a Welsh instrument, um, and there's a man wearing a fez playing this Welsh instrument. His fez has been kind of kind of crushed. He's playing this Welsh instrument, but he doesn't like the sound of its vox, its voice, and so he takes off his fez and addresses his fez, and he says that he wants the fez to mute the voice of this jimp cruth, jimp it being an obscure but real English word for skimpy. Um, so he takes off his fez and he says, squudgy fez, blank jimp cruth vox. And that's a 26-letter sentence, which uses every letter of the alphabet. Um, that's the best of them. There's several, but that's the best of them. Um, but generally, pangrammatical windows are, you know, of the length of the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dogs. Um, if you look for them in the wild, what you're generally going to find is that it takes hundreds and hundreds of characters to make sure you get all 26 letters. Um, it will be very rare that you'll find all 26 letters if you open a book at random. It'll be very rare that you'll find all 26 letters on a single page. Um, Q's and Z's and J's, as you all, as you Scrabble players know, they're kind of rare. Um, and lots of E's, but Q's and C's and J's, not so many. Um, in Moby Dick, there's a 60-letter passage which has all 26 letters. So if you're one kind of critic, you will say, you know, Melville never missed a trick. There's a reason for this. All of reality is somehow focused into this 60-letter um, passage. We must read it. And the passage is something like, you know, the quick whale, the quick whale jumped over the lazy dog. You know, it's a totally uninteresting passage. But if you're a certain kind of critic, you say, what are the odds? 
Well, good, you're learning. Um, but if you're a certain kind of critic, you'll say, he must have intended this. If you're another kind of critic, you'll say, don't be ridiculous. If you read a book as long as Moby Dick, some fool looking for letters is going to inevitably find a passage of this length um, that's going to contain all letters. It's well, just. No, we just press the button on our computer and it'll do it through Google Books, won't it? Um, well, how would you do it? Search Moby Dick for A, comma, B, comma, C? No, they just like, make a program and just flies through all of it. I'm sure they, it's like a simple. I don't think it's that simple a program. Really? You would have to, what you would have, I mean, it's a simple program to write, but it wouldn't be a simple program to implement. Gotcha. You would have to just, just move, and you would, you would have to go through the entire book in a 26-letter sections, um, starting with each letter. Um, so, you know, say there are 300 million letters in Moby Dick, which is too many. You'd have to go through 300 million times a 26-letter windows, and then if that failed, move it up to 27-letter windows and so on. It would take, it might take, a it would take, <laughs> it would take half an hour. Um, you'd get really bored. Um, but the point is, when you find stuff like that, there is a question of significance. Um, I think it's clear that it's not something Melville realized he was doing. Um, but when you find out that the very middle line of a poem, which is about um, the structure of time and the symmetries of time, when you find that the very middle line or the very middle word of that poem is symmetry, then it feels like, well, there is something going on there. Um, but it's not definite that it's going on. Okay, so Merrill and Jackson are messing around with an Ouija board. And have any of you done that? No. You have? Can you describe what it's like? Honestly, yeah. for like my experience with it, someone wanted to get one and like the group I was with did not. We were like a lot of us were very opposed to even buying one. So I think it sort of turned into this very like silly environment, but there were two people that were like actually happening and like you know they were being all weird but I don't for us I don't think anything like divine or bizarre happened really it was more just like comical that night because people really get freaked out well yeah people do get freaked out or they want to be freaked out which is the general so if you've never done it um, have you seen it in like game stores yeah, you know it says lots of movies where that's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's there was one in Down Abbey. I don't remember that. Yeah, but. The, when they contacted what's his name. Uh, no, don't say it. I'm not, I just oh. started. Oh, no. Never mind. <laughs> right. The inventor of the atomic bomb. Now yes. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, all right. It's technically supposed to be pronounced we ya. Do you know that? It's yes, yes in French and German. Um, that's the guy who invented it in the early 20th century. Just said, ooh, mystifying oracle. We ya. But everyone says Ouija. Um, and I think Merrill said Ouija, although I'm not sure he did. I think he did. Um, but the idea is that um, two people touch. There's a board that says A, B, C, A through Z. And it also has yes and no and the numbers, 0 through 9. Um, and that's the simplest. You could say that that's almost the simplest sort of typewriter. Um, and what you do is you, you put the board down. If you buy, if you do the store-bought one, which they don't, they wrote, they, as they tell you, they, they constructed their own. But if you do store-bought one, you put the board down, then there's a little pointer, which is just a fairly frictionless um, 
light plastic thing that um, you can put your fingers on and two people put their fingers on the pointer and um, then you ask a question and you don't try to move it but what happens is it starts moving and the theory is um, if well people want to believe they're they're talking to spirits in the other world but everyone knows they're not um, and the th except in movies but in real life everyone knows they're not um, but the theory is that um, you know, what, what will always happen if you do this is it'll start moving and you'll say to the person, the other person who's, who's touching it, are you moving it? Because I'm not. And they'll say, no, I'm not moving it. Are you? Ooh, that's so weird. Um, and then you'll get bored, which is what happens <laughs> here. Um, but the theory is that people are moving it subconsciously. And so that what it really gives you an answer to is something like um, a subconscious um, desire, that there's a kind of Rorschach um, quality to the Ouija board, but two people are doing it. Um, and um, the reason that happens is that there's always going to be random motion. That is, if you touch anything and it's very light, it's going to move a little bit. But generally what we do is we compensate for that. But if someone else is also touching it, then sometimes um, what will happen is the two touches will be in sync and the thing will move much more than you feel yourself moving it um, because you just feel and discount the random noise of your touching something. Um, but it'll move more than if only you were touching it if the other person happens randomly at the same time to be moving it in the same direction. And if they're not moving it in the same direction, it won't move or it'll move in another direction or something. So each person has the experience of the other person's random movements and those can sometimes build up and then when they do build up, there's also a kind of experience where um, if it's moving fast towards a letter, you feel like you're just hanging on to it. But in order to hang on to it, you have to move your hand really fast. So that moves it just that much faster. So there's a neat way that, that it accelerates or amplifies random motion. And it can, like in a feedback loop, that random motion can be amplified really, really quickly. Um, the problem is Ouija boards generally don't spell well. Um, and the reason is there's too much randomness in it. But the theory in the 50s and 60s was, ah, but it's your subconscious mind talking, so it's actually really interesting for that reason. Um, so JM and DJ, who are how old when this starts? 30. Yep, the Rover Boys of 30 um, is how they describe themselves. The Rover Boys are like the Hardy Boys. Has anyone ever heard of the Rover Boy novels? So they were farm, they were, the Hardy Boys were basically about a California um, city where the, where the Hardy Boys are the sons of a police detective and they're amateur sleuths themselves. Um, the Rover Boys or the Bobsy Twins, you've heard about them, yes or no? So these are all a series of children's books. Um, and the Rover Boys is an older series that kind of disappeared in the 50s. But the general title of Rover Boy books were the Rover Boys in town, the Rover Boys at a dance, the Rover Boys at harvest time. So they're imagining the book about them would be the Rover Boys at 30. Um, so they're innocent, but not that innocent. Um, but they're living together. Um, it's what year? We're told. Guess? Uh, 1945. Um, they're living in Stonington, Connecticut. You can actually go to 
their house, which has now become a place where po which gives a fellowship to a poet every year to live there um, for the year and write poetry. But I think it's open for tours in the summer in Stonington, Connecticut, right overlooking Long Island Sound. Um, and they're living there, and they're happy um, and alone, and the equivalent of married um, in 1955, but at a time when uh, marriage is prohibited. But they're, you know, they're not particularly out, but they're also not particularly in the closet. That is, they're certainly out to all their friends. Um, lots of their friends are gay, and all their friends are, um, belong to a gay-friendly milieu. Um, and um, and they're living there, and they're happy, and the stage is set for Ephraim. So um, let's just, to the extent that we can, let's start with A. Um, and A is retrospective. If you look at the very last page of um, The Changing Light at Sandover, I pause as people go look. You will see what the last line of the poem is. The very last page. Last page. Page 555 or whatever it is. Um, oh, it may... Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that was added. Okay, yeah, yeah. Page 560, not 555. I was wrong. Uh, page 560. Um, just read the last line, someone. The last line. For their ears, I begin, admittedly. Yeah. So he says, so now the very end of the book is him saying, um, so I am now writing for their ears. Um, in this case, it's the ears of the dead. But I'm writing for their ears, and so I begin, admittedly. So the last word of the book proper is him getting to the point where he sits down to write the book. So for their ears, I begin, admittedly. All this stuff happened, and then I sat down and wrote. And what I wrote was the word, admittedly. I err by undertaking yeah. this in its form. Admittedly, I err by undertaking this in its present form. What form is that? Poetry, as opposed to the boldest prose reportage that was called for. The boldest prose reportage was called for that would reach the widest public in the shortest time. Time, it had transpired, was of the essence um, just a cliche, right? Time is of the essence. Um, but what does he do with that cliche in the next line? Time, the very adder of the rose, was running out. So what's the adder of the rose? Anyone know? Oil? Yeah. It, it's, the oil, it's the fragrant oil of the rose. Um, so what else would you call it? Perfume? Essence. Oh. <laughs> essence of rose adder. So time was of the essence, cliche. But then Merrill does what he does, which is to take that cliche and make it live again. Time, the very adder of the rose, was running out. We, though, were ancient foes, I and the deadline. So this is a line you should all memorize for a time when it will be of use to you. Well, to quote James Merrill, um, we, though, were ancient foes, I and the deadline. Also, my subject matter gave me pause, so intimate, so novel. Best, after all, to do it as a novel instead of as, as prose reportage. Maybe I should write a novel, he says. Looking about me, I found characters, human and otherwise. If the distinction meant anything in fiction, the distinction between what? Human and non. So that's a question you can ask about um, Ephraim 
Um, is he human or not? It's also questions you'll see that you can ask about Miranda. If you've gotten to section F, you'll know who Miranda is. Um, if not, not. Um, and about Maisie, and you do already know who Maisie is um, uh, because I mentioned her, uh, JM's cat, or their cat. Um, um, looking about me, I found characters, human and otherwise, with the distinction meant anything in fiction. Saw my way to a plot, or as much of one is still allowed for surprise and pleasure in its working out. So he tells you quickly and beautifully and wonderfully one um, impulse to write, which is you have an idea and then you actually take pleasure but also surprise in working that idea out. That writing and reading are not exactly diametric differences. It's not that one person writes and someone else reads, but that when you write, you're figuring out what's happening, just as when you read, you're figuring out what's happening. That there's a way in which writer and reader are both more or less on the same side of a relationship to the unfolding of a story. The writer puts it down, but the writer also, in some way or other, observes it unfolding, works out what must be happening, just as we did with Turn of the Screw. If Turn of the Screw is not ambiguous, then reading a second narrative into it is actually writing a second narrative into it. If it's not ambiguous, then the second novel of this two novels in one is one that we've written. We don't know which one, unfortunately. Um, but that means, in a sense, that all reading, which isn't the simplest possible reading, is doing something a little bit like writing. Now you begin to see why an Ouija board would be the central metaphor here. Are they writing or are they reading when they use an Ouija board? That's the first thing we can ask or notice to ask. I saw my way to a plot, or as much as one that's still allowed for surprise and pleasure and it's working out, knew my setting and had from the start a theme whose steady light shone back, it seemed, from every least detail exposed to it. So um, remember the George Eliot image of the candle haloing itself in the scratched mirror? That image is central to this book. If you look at um, section N, even though you haven't gone, gotten to it yet, um, I think it's section N. 47? Yeah, I have different page numbers, um, but uh, yeah, it is section N. So go to page 48 if it starts on page 47. Um, the first paragraph that begins, and Leo feels, why? So this is from the lost novel. Um, and so you don't have to actually know what's going on, but just see this. And Leo feels, why just that Eros knows, goes wherever they go. Eros is the novel's version of Ephraim. And Leo feels, why just that Eros knows, goes where they go, watches, cares, lighthearted, light at heart. A candle haloing itself, the bedroom mirror's wreath of scratches, fiery fine as hairs. Joanna closes Middlemarch downstairs, making sense for once of long attrition. So the candle in the mirror halos itself in the scratches that are the attrition 
the erosion of the surface of the mirror, but the candle haloing itself in those scratches, as George Eliot describes the candle doing in Middlemarch, I'll bring in the passage tomorrow, um, is the candle haloing itself in the mirror makes sense of long attrition, makes something that looks sensible of long attrition. Randomness, random letters, random Rorschach lots making sense by the intelligence that shines on them and gets reflected back, just as in section A, whose steady light shone back at scene from every least detail exposed to it. The last thing to notice is, why is Joanna closes middle march downstairs in parentheses? Okay, and what about the typo typography of the parentheses? No, Ephraim, when Ephraim speaks, it's capital letters. Um, it's the halo. It's the curve. So here's pure typographical randomness that we can now make sense of um, in just that way. Okay, see you tomorrow. Professor. Uh-huh. Um, since we only did, like,